0: Let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. Do we have the audio signal moving down there, kind of in the middle there? All right. That's what I like to see. Father, we come before you and we ask for your blessing as we open your word together, as we look at the words of Jesus in this chapter together. As we listen to him as our Savior, but as our Lord, as the one who is the truth. And we ask the help of your spirit to submit ourselves to what you have said in your word We ask for eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that believe. We ask this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, since the beginning of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus has been talking about the second coming. He's been talking about the end of the age. He's answering his disciples' questions. His disciples had three questions. When will these things happen? And the when Jesus explained in the previous verse, verse 36, is none of our business. It's the Father's business. They asked, uh, what are the signs of your coming? And he's been answering that. And what are the signs of the end? And he's been answering that. And he actually spends more of his time in these two chapters, 24 and 25, answering two questions that they didn't ask, but which are are maybe better questions. The first of those is, how should we live? How should Christians live in light of Christ's return? What difference should this make to our lives? The second question is, what do you mean? By the end of the age, what do we mean by the end of the age? What is that going to look like? So he's been answering those questions. And now as we reach verse 37 of chapter 24, from this point until the 30th verse of chapter 25, Jesus is simply speaking about what we as Christians are supposed to do. And I could summarize all of those verses with one word, and it's not tradition. I can summarize all of those verses with one word, readiness. He calls us to be ready. He begins with our passage this morning by comparing the end of the the age with the days of Noah. So we're going to be considering that carefully this morning. And then uh, beginning in in verse 42, all the way through uh, chapter 24, verse 42, all the way through chapter 25, verse 30, he gives four parables of readiness. I don't know that we'll take those one at a time. We might. There's some really good stuff there. They're not simply telling the same story over and over again. There's different aspects to them. So you can be praying for me as I look at these. I always tell Linda, we're going to take a big chunk. And then by the time I'm done, we're taking a little bite. Uh, the, The word of God, let me say this. The word of God's like calamari. It's like you take a bite and the more you chew it, the bigger it gets. So... We don't want to bite off too much. Jesus says, starting in verse 37, for just as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the son of man will be. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two in the field. One will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding grain at the mill. One will be taken, and one will be left. So he begins with the days of Noah. So having started in Matthew 24, let's turn back to Genesis 6. And just take a few minutes and consider the days of Noah. As, as we look at Genesis 6, the first four verses are a transition between the genealogy of chapter 5 and the state of the world in chapter 6, verse 5. Beginning in, in verse 5 then, we read this, Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So if you have a print Bible and you don't mind writing in your Bible or circling and underlining, if you want something to underline here, every intent, only continually. He, he paints a picture of total depravity that's crystal clear. Crystal clear. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man was not supposed to be that way. The world was not supposed to be that way. God had created Adam and Eve and and given them a command to be fruitful and fill the earth and subdue it. Man was supposed to subdue the earth and rule it as as God's regents, as God's appointed agents. We were supposed to be spreading uh, the righteousness of God and the glory of God as we worked the world that God made and gave to us to work. But Adam sinned, and so man multiplied evil in the world to the point that the earth itself was corrupted. Verses 11 and 12, 13 say, The earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence in the Hebrew language emphasis is created by repetition and the maximum repetitions that you find is three you get three repetitions so think of Isaiah 6 holy 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 well here you have corrupt 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 you still got this idea of repetition with the people of the earth I think you actually see that, frankly, in verse 5 2. Every, only, continually, you've got this repeated theme where it's that, that truth is simply pressed home for us. So God sees that the evil of man and the corruption of the earth, the violence in the earth has reached a peak, and it's time for a cleansing. In Genesis 6-7, God says, I will blot out man. Animals, creeping things, birds of the sky. In verse 13, he says he's going to destroy all flesh on the earth. In verse 17, it says he's going to bring a flood of water on the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life. But in all that corrupt world, God found one man... Not favorable, but rather that one man found favor with God. Just to be clear on this, it doesn't never says God found Noah favorable. It says Noah found favor. Now, why did Noah find favor with God? Well, why does anyone find favor with God? Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. That has always been true. From Adam all the way through. Without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who draws near to God must believe two things, that he is, which just makes sense, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So Hebrews 11.6 was true from the moment God created Adam. (coughs) We're told that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, Genesis 15.6. So I I didn't create a slide for this. I should have. I apologize. But yesterday, I took the genealogy from Noah to Abraham. When Abraham was born, all ten generations back to Adam were alive. Adam, or uh, did I say Adam? Back to Noah. Thank you. Thank you. My wife is there fact-checking me. So, when Abraham was born, all 10 generations back to Noah were still alive. Noah died when Abraham was 60. Shem, Shelah, and Eber outlived Abraham. So Abraham, according to Joshua 24.2, was raised in a family of idol worshippers. How did he know who God was when God spoke to him? It could be that he was simply raised as an idolater and God intervened and and interrupted his life and introduced himself. But isn't it possible that Noah and Shem and Shelah and Eber were righteous? There's a point, I think it's either at Eber or Peleg, who is Eber's son, where the, the, the lifespans drop off very quickly. They go from living seven, eight, nine hundred years to living two hundred years or three hundred years. It drops off very quickly. Maybe that coincides with this abandonment of God and this pursuit of idols. Either way, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Noah believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So it's the only way anybody can please God or find favor with God is through faith. 2 Peter 2.5 says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. I don't think he began preaching righteousness when the flood was announced. I think he'd been a preacher of righteousness most of his life. He was 500 years old when when God announced that the flood was going to come. That's also when his sons began to to be born. But I think he'd been a preacher of righteousness long before that. 2 Peter 2.7 and 8 speaks of Lot calls him righteous lot, and says that his spirit was provoked within him by the evil around him, I think that that's true of Noah too. As he grew up with, with the, the teaching and the preaching of great, 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 great Grandpa Noah. I won't make you sit through that with Sheila and Eber. But as he grows up with that, he recognizes the evil and he begins to speak out against it as a preacher of righteousness. When God says to him, the end of all flesh has come before me. I'm going to destroy it all. I want you to build an ark, and then he gives him the scale of the ark, and Noah begins, and he, he's got a, an object lesson in the grace of God to, to spare those who trust him, and in the judgment of God to destroy those who don't. Now, you've, now his preaching of righteousness intensifies, and he gains a reputation for being a preacher of righteousness even while the world around him falls into chaos and wickedness, but they didn't pay attention. So back to Matthew 24, just as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be, for as in those days people will be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came. So people are just doing what they're supposed to be doing. Eating and drinking is not a sin. Getting married is not a sin. Giving your children in marriage is, is not a sin. And that's what's being described here. What's described is marrying. Linda and I got married 20, uh, 42 years ago. And then uh, 13 years ago, our daughter Sarah was given in marriage. Now she's got children of her own, and the day will come when when she and Elliot give their children in marriage and they marry and then they have children who are given in marriage. Jesus is just saying the generations are just rolling forward. They're eating and drinking. He's not saying that they're sinful. He's not saying getting married is sinful. He's not saying giving your children in marriage is sinful. But he is saying that it's a a sin to forget your creator. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Solomon says, remember also your creator in the days of the youth the days of your youth, rather, before the evil days happen and the years draw near in which you say I have no delight in them. I mean, we see that people who, who abandon faith in God, people who deny that, who turn away, who live for themselves. They often reach a point in, in middle age or perhaps older where they just say there's no joy in life. There's no reason to live. There's no purpose to all of this. I have no delight in my life. Well, no, you've, you've forgotten your creator. See, nothing has changed since then. People still live in willful ignorance of their creator. Romans 1 says even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but as a result of that, they became futile in their thoughts. When you refuse to glorify God as God, when you refuse to be thankful to God as creator and provider, your thinking just becomes pointless. It becomes futile, it becomes empty. Another result of that is that their foolish heart was darkened. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, 1 John 1. But those who have abandoned God, those who have turned their backs on him, who have rejected him, they're just plunged into darkness. They have nowhere else to go. As a result of all this, they profess themselves to be wise because they're living in darkness and they can't tell the difference. They profess themselves to be wise, but they become fools. And what do fools do? They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. We just saw a picture on the internet of uh, flooding in India. And there's a huge Indian god statue that's just buried up to the shoulders in a flood it's like if the, if that god can't protect itself from the flood why do you think it could protect you from the flood but but see they've forgotten their creator mm-hmm. they've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible god for likenesses of things that was paul's world it was noah's world and it's all our world today nothing has changed so when Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, what does he mean? He means that there are days of great evil on the earth. He means that every thought of the the unregenerate human heart is only evil continually. And let me, let me say this about that. We all know people who are unbelievers who are, from our point of view, they're good. They're good people. Sometimes they're better people than Christians that we know. But we can only see two things. We can only see the things that they do. And we can only see their skin. We can't see deeper than their skin. We can't see their hearts. And so we can't see the corruption on the inside. We can't see that so many of the good things that people do are for selfish reasons or fearful reasons. They're for reasons of pride or self-acclaim or self-affirmation. And they're not done for the glory of God. Jesus means that the earth itself has been corrupted by man's sin. This is because man was given authority by God to subdue the earth and rule it in righteousness. But man's fall brought corruption on the earth and the earth reflects the character of its rulers. That's why Romans 8 says that the very creation cries out and groans under the burden of our sin. The creation is not guilty, but the creation has been corrupted because of us. Jesus means that even though the judgment is coming upon mankind and he's warned the the world through preachers of righteousness, they don't understand. They don't understand. And they're unconcerned and apathetic. And he means that the wicked will remain unconcerned until it's too late. It's too late. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the very day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand. So you can imagine Noah's compatriots, they're they're listening to him when he's just a a young thing of 100 or 150 years old and he's preaching righteousness and he's calling them to repent of their sins and to, to turn to the creator, to turn back to Yahweh and they just kind of laugh at him and then all of a sudden he shows up and his hair's maybe a little bit frizzed out and his eyes are bigger and they're wider and he says, God has spoken to me and they go, oh, wow, here we go and he says, he's going to destroy everything. I'm going to build a huge boat and then God is going to destroy everything. I don't think that there's a point, as far as I know, where God says, I'm going to do this in a hundred years. He simply says, I'm going to do this, so get building. So Noah builds the ark, and they watch it. They watch him lay the keel of it. They watch him put the planks in place and the ribs, and he's inside working on the decks. And it goes on for decades and decades and decades. And whenever he's got a spare moment, he's preaching righteousness to the people. He's calling them to repent. And then it's done, and all of a sudden here comes this this unimaginably diverse group of animals. They're just coming. They're just coming. Nowhere in Genesis 6 or 7 does it say that Noah went on a safari and gathered animals. God brought the animals he wanted. Did every animal survive the flood? No. There were animals that were left behind. Dinosaurs, the violent ones, were left behind and drowned in the flood. And the people are looking at that, and other than watching where they step, there's no concern. And then they see Noah and his family go up on board, and then it's almost like a a giant invisible hand swings that door shut. And they're just shaking their heads. What is he doing? What's going on? Then the unthinkable happens, and they finally understand. In the sixth hour, this is uh, Genesis Seven eleven, In the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month on the 17th day of the month. By the way, that's how we know it's history. We're given dates. On this day, all the fountains of the great deep were split open and the floodgates of the sky were opened and the rain came upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So the flood didn't begin with a few raindrops and slowly increase in intensity. It began explosively and violently. Jesus uses the word cataclysmos, cataclysm. It's an explosive, violent, sudden change. The fountains of the deep are split open. Massive earthquakes take place. The tectonic plates that form the earth's crust we're in the North American plate. The Pacific plate and the North American plate are moving against each other. And that's why we get earthquakes where, where we grew up and where where uh, Donna has lived. And that, that's why those things take place. But within the North American plate are hundreds of smaller broken chunks. All of that is broken up and go- columns of water begin gushing up. I read this and it must be true because it's on the Internet. <laughs> But scientists over the last decade or so have decided that there's three times as much water under the surface of the earth as on top. That includes oceans. That's not that's not Lake Muscatine and the Missouri River. That's all of the water visible on the surface. There's three times more underneath. Three times more. It's a phenomenal amount. They tell us that you know, Mount Everest and the Himalayas, it's because the the Indian plate is pushing under the Asian plate and it's, it's pushing up. Isn't it possible that when it collapsed, it just kind of fell? I think that maybe both are happening. So this is a hugely violent thing. And then the floodgates of the sky are opened up. The word there, floodgates, could be translated windows. So this isn't rain. This isn't even like the heaviest rain you've ever seen. This is like standing at the bottom of Niagara Falls and looking up. This is the kind of rain where if you look up, you'll drown. So people are swept off their feet. They're tumbled. I used to kind of think to myself, and, you know, you think all kinds of things as you read Scripture. I used to kind of think to myself, oh, think about Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives on the ark hearing the screams Well, if you've ever been to the ark encounter, if Noah's ark was actually built kind of like that, the walls were six feet thick. They didn't hear any screams. They didn't hear rain. They heard the water moving against the boat. And as it went up, it just became peaceful. And I don't want to stretch the analogy too far, but I love the picture of God's elect being raised up above the judgment. Maybe there's a shadow of the rapture there. Maybe. Well, Jesus says they didn't understand until the day that Noah entered the flood. And then the flood came and they understood. They did not understand until the flood came. So they're thrown off their feet. Buildings are collapsing. Trees are shaking and perhaps being knocked over fountains of water gushing out of the earth the, the it's raining so hard you can't open your eyes to see and they say oh that's what he was talking about and it's too late it's too late Hebrews 12 says of Esau that he waited too long and he longed to repent with tears he sought it with tears but he found no place it was too late Eli warned his sons who were wicked, wicked priests, and they refused to listen because God was determined to put them to death. See, there's a point of judgment where it's simply too late. But Jesus isn't just talking about Noah's time. He's talking about the end of time. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. It will be too late to repent when Jesus appears. It will be too late to, re- to believe the gospel. That'll be done. That's why the book of Hebrews thunders out in chapters 3 and 4. Today is the day. Today is the day. Today is the day. If you hear his voice, today is the day. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Now, whether or not it's too late for somebody today that we know to repent and believe the gospel, we don't know. That's a secret thing. That's a Deuteronomy 20, 29, 29 thing. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. That's, we don't know that. We don't know that. And so we urge repentance and we urge faith in Christ. We shouldn't be surprised when sinners resist. If anything, we should be surprised that anybody would actually repent and believe the gospel because the heart of sinful man is so hard. Jesus has been comparing The end times with the the time of Noah, there's a lot of similarities. There's some differences. But one of the similarities is that the righteous must be removed before judgment can come. So verses 40 and 41, then there will be two in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding grain at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. (coughs) Context tells us what we need to know. The, The difficulty is that there's two opposite contexts that we can draw from in the gospel of Matthew in Matthew chapter 13 in the parable of the weeds and the wheat field the 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 picture is the angels gathering the weeds first before gathering the wheat but in verse 31 of this chapter Jesus says the son of man will send forth his angels to gather the elect and so I think that those who are being taken are the elect They're being delivered from judgment. That's what I think, based on context. It could be the opposite. Either way, it's God distinguishing between the righteous and the wicked. That's the picture that we have. We see that the elect are not sitting on hillsides by the way, they are eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage they're not sitting on hillsides looking at the sky holding hands and singing camp songs they're getting on with life they're they're preaching righteousness the difference is not in their actions but in their attitudes the the elect repent of their sins and trust in christ the wicked celebrate their sins and trust in their own imaginations the elect understand that they were created to glorify god the wicked believe that they exist for their own pleasure and that they should simply take all that they can before they no longer exist. The elect slowly come to resemble Christ as the Holy Spirit transforms them, as the Spirit of God sanctifies them. The wicked remain as they are or become worse. The elect are not perfect and sinless. Please don't hear me say that. But they are repentant and humble before their God, while the wicked savor their sins and excuse them as their choices or as their preferences or as their rights. The elect know that one day this world will come to an end and judgment will happen. They trust that Jesus' death on the cross alone has delivered them fully and finally from that judgment to come. The wicked believe that all things will simply go on as, as they always have. They even say that in, in 2 Peter 3. Where is the sign of his coming? Ever since the time of the fathers, everything just keeps going like it always has. Why doesn't he actually come? And Peter says, wait, just wait for it. So the wicked believe all things will continue as they always have. They're either amused or insulted at the idea that they'll face judgment. The hope of the elect is that they'll be gathered to Christ either when they die here on earth or when the Lord returns for them, the hope of the wicked is that either that God doesn't care about their sin or that there is no God, and so no no need for concern. So let's, let's bring this home. Um, there have been times when I've caused people very extreme discomfort, tremendous discomfort, wounded their feelings by wondering out loud if they know the Lord. Uh, some people have been deeply offended. Others have been offended on their part. Years ago, I was doing a and a Q&A in another church. And somebody asked the question, why are you constantly trying to get us saved? And my answer at the time was, because I don't know that you're saved. But as I think about it, it's like, are you kidding me? Hell is coming. Hell is coming. Do you not believe that? Do you not understand that a day of judgment is coming? Do you, not understand that, do you not understand that we can deceive ourselves and think that we're okay when we're not? Can you imagine what the day of judgment will be like for that person who fully believes that they're a Christian and that they're right with God and finds out that they never knew him? Can you imagine what that day would be like for the pastor who stands there and watches that person be condemned knowing that he never warned them? that he never cautioned anybody to examine their lives. The Bible doesn't discourage self-examination. It commands it. I heard a, a radio preacher this week. I won't tell you his name, but he's from Southern California and Pastors Harvest Church. Let the reader understand, right? Right? <laughs> He, he! I caught him just as he was leading a 15-second prayer. And then he ended the prayer by saying, if you've prayed that prayer, you never have to worry about your salvation. Well, this is what scripture says. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Now, Paul, when he says that in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he's not saying, I am in doubt about all of you and nobody can ever be sure and you can never have any peace or comfort and you should be afraid all the time. He says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do you not recognize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? So the the good answer to the test is to look at our lives and say, I know him. He has saved me. How do we know that? the two signs that were given, stubborn faith in Christ and steady transformation in Christ? Not transformation according to a schedule. No in scripture does it say by year one, you'll be here. By year five, you'll be here. By year 20, you'll be here. But can that person look back over the last year or five or 10 of their life and say, I've grown. My faith has remained in Jesus Christ and stubborn and I've grown. Maybe it's little growth. Maybe it's small. Maybe it's been huge steps of growth at times. We're not in competition with each other. But there's an upward move. Neither does the Bible say that we should never look at anyone else and fear for them. To the contrary, Hebrews 4 says, Therefore let us fear, lest, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you seem to have fallen short of it. The, the Greek word translated seem means seem. It means to give an indication, to show signs, to give the appearance of. Let us be afraid when somebody claims to be a Christian, but their life gives the indication that they're not. When their life seems to be out of out of alignment with who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. Let us be afraid for them and warn them That's what we're supposed to do. And finally, the Bible doesn't say everything is going to work out for those who have self-confidence in Christ. Jesus himself says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. He's not saying we earn our salvation by what we do. He's saying if you're saved, there's going to be a transformation in your life that you can see. I love what John says in 1 John 5. These things I have written to you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. And there are things like, are you walking in the light? Are you confessing your sin? Do you love the brethren? Do you confess Christ? Do you remain consistent with the teaching of the apostles and the body of Christ? Have you been transformed? Do you recognize error? Do you recognize when somebody's got it wrong? Those are the signs of genuine faith. And John says, when he says these things I have written to you who believe so that you may know that you have eternal life, he's saying it's quite possible for somebody to actually be a Christian and not have the assurance of it, to be concerned with it. Being afraid for your own soul is not a sign that you're not saved. He's saying assurance is something that takes time. If you have the wonderful privilege of being with somebody when they're born again and seeing them respond to the gospel, you have you have no authority to make them eternal an eternal promise. You've got the call to urge them now to Christ. Urge them into his word and into fellowship so that they can grow. There's only a couple of things that I'm I'm truly afraid of. There are a lot of things I don't want to face. There are a lot of things I don't want to think about. But there are only really two things that I'm afraid of. The first is that I'll get scripture wrong as a teacher and a preacher. I'm under a stricter judgment than you are. And so I fear that. There has to be a healthy respect for the truth of God. And I fear the possibility that anybody I preach to will find themselves under the judgment of God because they didn't actually believe. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, if anybody's going to go to hell, make them leap over your body. Get in their way with the gospel and with an urging to trust in Jesus Christ to the point where if they go to hell, it's because they're ignoring direct statements so here's here's the response i long for you this morning if you don't know christ then humble yourself before him turn away from your sins and trust him entirely give up your attempts to make yourself right or change your life you have always failed to change yourself you'll you'll continue to fail Jesus made a complete atonement on the cross. If you will trust him, if you will repent of your sins and turn it over to him, he's paid for every sin. And if you do know Christ as Savior, please humble yourself. Be honest about the state of your soul. Don't put on a show. Don't pretend. If we were going to be honest with each other, I don't necessarily recommend it. But if we we're going to be honest with one another, this is the place where where the act takes place. This is the place where people pretend. How are you doing? Great. Awesome. When maybe you're just kind of wrestling inside and heavy inside and dying inside. This is the place where you look at somebody else and say, I wish I could be like her. She's just so much at peace. I wish I could be like him. Look at his love for the Lord. But I can only see the skin. And maybe they're looking back at you saying, I wish I could be like him. When all of us should be saying, I wish I could be like Jesus more and more. And we lift one another up. We love one another enough to pray for our common sanctification and encourage our, encourage one another as we grow in Christ. So we rejoice when the believers we know grow. We rejoice when they go through a tough time, but their faith emerges intact. And they learn from that. They learn about the faithfulness of God. There's only one lesson. There really is only one lesson. God is faithful. I I think that I was saying to Linda on the way down from Creighton this morning, I think that that's the, the bachelor's degree, but I don't think that that's true. I think that that's the doctorate degree of Christianity, is to be able to so thoroughly rest in the faithfulness of God that we have no concern. Not because we're perfect, not because we're right, but because God is faithful. That's a huge lesson, and it takes a, a long time to learn. When people stumble, when people are weak, let's strive to be like Jesus, who, who didn't break a, a, a broken reed, and he didn't quench a smoking flax. And so when people struggle to encourage them and to love them, to urge them to grasp all the more tightly to Christ as time goes by. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth spoken through the Lord Jesus Christ. These are sober words in these chapters. (coughs) The weight of this message uh, settled on me this week and I think it settles on all of us who hear it that we look not to ourselves for hope we don't look for our uh, good intentions we don't look for our devotion we don't look for our our self-worth we look to Jesus who finished the work, who is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, who is tempted in all ways as we are without sin, and who has made a way so that we can come boldly before the throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help in time of need. We thank you for our Savior. We ask that we would be more like him. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.